Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast. And we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. That's my little uh, horn there. <laughs> the fanfare? Yeah, the fanfare. <laughs> Confetti bomb? Because <laughs> we're here, man. We're, we're at the end. It's, it's it. The final volume. We made it. Who knew? Who knew we'd live this long <laughs> to make it? First of all, yeah. Uh, because, you know, the Grateful Dead, when they started, they probably all thought, oh, we're going to be in this band for as long as there's a band. Right. And we all know that did not happen. Mm-hmm. Some people fell right. along the way, and then they hired other people, and then they fell. And they hired people, and then they fell, too. Um, but you and I, we started this band, I guess it was January of 2020, maybe February, something like that? That'd be the first first episode came right around then, yeah. So yeah. I think we started recording December 2019. We had a few okay. in the can when we premiered, so. A worldwide plague soon <laughs> fell upon the world. Yes. And yet we, we soldiered on through that. Uh, no Grateful Dead, no no Dead & Co. for a long time. It was, it was just us listening to Dick's Picks. We, we had to soldier through the shutdown of the music industry. And here we are, and this is our fare thee well here. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever seen, do you ever watch a Tour de France? Sometimes they have a stage that ends on a mountain. So they, they end <laughs> with a big climb. And as soon, okay. as, as soon as they cross the finish line, there's guys whose job is to like grab onto them and wheel them forward away from the finish line because they have used every last shred of energy to get to wow. that finish line. They have no more, no more watts, no, nothing left to pedal. 
So they need somebody to actually wheel them uh, to where they can get off their bike. So that's that's what I feel like we've got to here. Do we have like some people from Osiris <laughs> on on call to like lift us out of our podcasting seats at the end of this episode? <laughs> yeah, when, take our headphones finally off, clean off our microphone. Just collapse from exhaustion. Exactly. I mean, you know, is one of us going to start? We've joked about this before, but you know. Is one of us going to start a new podcast after this episode with like a younger and better looking <laughs> co-host? It's possible. Who knows? Who knows what the future holds? Yeah, man. 36 from the vault and company. Yeah. Coming your way. Vault and company. Right after, right after this episode airs, we're going to be hitting arenas, one of us, with like, it'll be like Rob or I and like, you know, a, like a 25-year-old. <laughs> Hot new head writer. Yeah. Named Skyler. <laughs> you know, it's just frosted tips and fancy watches. Fancy watches. Uh, lots of celebrity friends. Uh, and then the other one will be like the Phil. So, you know, so if, so let's say I do the Dead and Co thing. And then you're gonna have like Robin friends. Robin friends, okay. And people will be like, well, that's There'll be a contingent that feels like you're you're kind of keeping the flame going for <laughs> the freakier side of the dead, and then there's gonna be, uh, you know, Joe Russo's almost thirty six from the vault, right? Yeah, uh, which another contingent will say that's even better than the original <laughs> guys. Yeah, some of our listeners will get together and do the road trips <laughs> volumes <Yeah. laughs> in our absence. Yeah. Uh, and they'll talk faster than us. Like they'll talk at right. 1.5 speed, and we'll just put sound. things in a different order. Yeah, exactly. They'll you know, yeah, maybe drop some Led Zeppelin talk in the middle there. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so yeah, how, I mean, how are you feeling right now, man? How are you feeling about our journey? How are you feeling about the dead? You know, I mean, we're not done yet. We got one more to go. But I mean, that's right. We're, we're on yeah. deck here. Well, we, uh, you know, you and I, we talked about doing something special for the final episode. But I think we decided correctly just to keep it, keep it no gimmicks. We've only had one guest our entire run. Keep it just to the one guest. Was this a decision or was this just us, like we normally do, running out of time? Because we weren't really prepared. <laughs> well, uh, we, we, didn't, we couldn't think of anything to do. Yeah, okay, so that too. Uh, but, you know, as we've been saying all along, that's in the spirit of the dead, who never uh, never quite planned things right. too far in advance. So, But yeah, you, you, we, we've got to the end here. It's just the two of us. Yep. Nobody, nobody else intruding on this. No, no, no special segments. Uh, but I think, yeah, we should talk this episode as we're going through the show. You know, how do we feel about the dead after, after this project? After laying down some... 40 hours, 50 hours of oh, tape. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Talking about this band over the last three years. More than, I mean, because we've done 40 episodes. So right. we're, we're, we're hitting like about 100 hours of, of, oh, sure, of sure. Grateful Dead talk I'm by way now. Yeah. Uh, which, and it feels like it at this point. I, I just right. wonder how many things we've repeated this season <laughs> that we've said a hundred times right. like oh yeah you can't really hear uh, keith on here why isn't keith's <laughs> piano loud enough i feel like we've like run that one into the ground by this yeah. point so but hope people keep listening so hopefully we are occasionally dropping fresh insights along with the old favorites 
I guess that's like the dead as well, you know? Right. You, 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 you listen to a whole show, you sit through El Paso, you sit through me, me and my uncle, because you're hoping for that second set jam that's going to blow your mind. Not guaranteeing we're going to deliver that in this episode, but that's always the promise that hangs out there. Could always happen. You never know. You never know when you're going to have a, a mind-blowing moment. Um yeah, so you know this is just this is old school thirty six from the vault here. Let's let's uh, let, let's talk about a pretty pretty excellent show. Yeah, let's get to it. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. All right, my show, Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie, has hit 1 million podcast downloads because of you. This is huge. That means we're in the top 5% of all podcasts among listeners. I want to thank you for listening to the show and supporting what we do. Iron sharpens iron. On this show, we dive into the most pressing news of our time. It's not easy, but it's necessary. Providing insightful commentary and a heavy dose of fact-based truth. We cover criminal justice, politics, social justice, policy, and how racism affects us all. Find Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you are subscribed to our show so you don't miss an episode and don't forget to rate us with five stars. Now that we've reached one million podcast downloads, let's get our show to number one in the podcast charts. Here we are, 36 from the vault, brought to you by Osiris. My name is Steve. My name, for the last time, is Rob. Are you changing your name after this episode? (laughs) Yeah, I'm changing it to Bob. (laughs) That's right. Well, we talked about, you know, speaking of our old bits, we talked about you going as like Bobby Mitchum. Yeah, or Robbie. Yeah, Robbie, Robbie, Robbie with the, with the IE at the end. <laughs> right, exactly. That'd be the funniest. Actually, I think Bobby with an IE would be the funniest. <laughs> yeah, you don't get a lot of male Bobbies <laughs> with an IE. Oh, no, man, there's a good reason for that probably. Um, so as we've said, 36 from the vault, we're talking about Dick's Picks 36 in this right. episode. We're going back to September of 72. This is September 21st, 1972 in Philadelphia at the Spectrum. And there's a little bit of filler from Folsom Field and Boulder. That's also a September 72 show. That's September 3rd. And uh, yeah, we've we've been to September 72 the most uh, in Dick's Picks. I guess it's appropriate that we're back for the last episode. Yeah, one of Dick's favorite time periods i think he only got one of these shows out while he was still alive but uh as we'll talk about they were kind of 
Given paying tribute to Dick here with the final volume. You know, you know the, the, the dead, they didn't do anything special for Dick's Picks Volume 36. They didn't uh, pull out some gimmicky show or, you know, release Cornell or something as Dick's Picks 36. They just released an incredibly solid uh, 1972 show. Uh, and to, to close out the series in style. Yeah. I mean, really, I don't know how you were feeling about this, but I mean, they ended super strong here. This is. I think the best expects we've heard in this whole season, quite some time. It's I would, hard, to, hard to go back, yeah. It definitely feels like the best of the season. I, 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 that seems pretty clear to me. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, we talked about how much Dick liked this month. Dick's Picks 11 is from this month, and Dick's Picks 23 is from this month. I think those three shows are like a, within a week and a half of each other. Right. So this is true... Blue Dick's Picks, you know, just golden era right here. And it, we're going to get into this. It's kind of interesting how this release came to be because you listen to it and you feel like, oh, this is a slam dunk. It's kind of right. weird in a way that it didn't come out sooner. I guess you have those other September 72 Dick's Picks. And we'll talk about, like, why it took so long to come out. There's sort of an interesting backstory with that whole thing. Or, or so I'm told. I hope it's an interesting backstory. <laughs> yeah, I'll do my best. Um, I, a question for you, Steve. I think, I think we both feel the same way. But do you think this season was the hardest uh, to get through of our four seasons, the four quarters of the thirty-six, the way we sliced it up? Um, yeah, definitely, and not so much to do with the dead as much as just finding interesting things to say about the dead. Yeah. Uh, which uh, it got to be a little tough. I have to say too, personally, and you know, I've been beating this drum all season long. But you know, I when I have my own recreational dead listening, I tend to listen to more eighties and nineties, just because that's still an era that I'm not super familiar with, and I also feel like it's a little less trod ground in terms of like other dead commentary out there you don't hear as much about that period so it it feels fresher for that reason even if clearly the 70s are just this great period for the dead um you know we were getting so much 70s this season and i just found myself feeling like i'm a little sick of this i kind of want to go to different eras different years where i Maybe I've never heard a show from that year. Right. Um, and that goes for the 60s, too, which is kind of funny. I mean, again, like the 60s, the Dead's originally associated with the 60s. We didn't get much 60s this season. Did we have, like, one 60s? Yeah, I think we just barely dipped in, yeah. So that was my I, – I don't know. Do you feel that way about this? Yeah, I, it's, like, something I've been thinking about um, with my Fish Project, where I also listen – to show after show after show, I listen to them in chronological order in that case, and like the balance between sort of novelty and hearing the same songs over and over again and getting that enjoyment out of being able to compare uh, different versions of songs very close together and see how they changed and see what the you know variations are. Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I totally agree with this season. It just like... Going back and forth over the 70s kind of 
kind of wore me out. It's funny because when we when we came in when we were doing the preseason shows, the live broadcasts, we thought that this was just going to be banger after banger, <laughs> but it did kind of end up being like uh, the most difficult leg of the journey. I feel like in some ways. Um, well, and they were hitting us with heavy meals too. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's the other thing. We're getting like six bangers. You know, we're. I mean, it seemed like a minimum of four was what we were getting this season. There might have been like one three banger, but right. I don't think there were any two bangers. We didn't get any. Oh, the, wait, I think the. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, it was the eighty show. The eighty show was a two banger. <laughs> of course, the eighty so. show has to be a two banger. But like everything else, and again, you know, you feel like an ingrate complaining about getting all of this Grateful Dead. Like, cause these were beautiful recordings for the most part. You know, getting these beautiful sounding releases at a time, you know, like when they originally came out, when these this kind of stuff was harder to come by. Like, I feel weird complaining about it. I don't feel like we're complaining about it. <laughs> No. But, you know, one thing you notice about the dead is that obviously, you know, they're known for improvisation. And there's usually some example of great improvisation in every show. But you also see the formulas of their set lists when you listen to right. a bunch of these releases, and even in the 70s. You know, because when we, had, we went from like that 76 show, which I think was, uh, was that 33? And then we went to the seventy three, yeah. And then we went to the seventy seven show. You just see, okay, they're playing like a lot of the same songs, right? In the first set, and they're playing them pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. And that got a little exhausting, I think, for yeah. me. Though, though, oddly, one of the things that I found so satisfying about this as a finish was how it paired with thirty five, because I think there's a really interesting progression from volume thirty five basically a year earlier uh, to, um, you know, volume 36. You go from August 71 to September 72. Same amount of time as the difference between 33 and 34, but I think uh, much bigger differences. Oh, yeah. So, like, there's something about, like, we've mentioned a a few times now that if the Dick's Pick series was chronological, we probably would have tapped out (laughs) a long time ago uh, just because... It does get so samey from year to year, though. I do feel like this last run of shows by zigzagging around the 70s wasn't as satisfying as sort of just hearing two shows in close proximity like this and, and, and teasing apart the differences. But no, I totally agree. I wish we had heard more 80s, more 90s. I think one of my big takeaways from doing this whole project uh, is a better appreciation of those later dead eras. I was a total 60s and 70s only dead die hard before we did this project. Now I... Uh, have new things that I like about the 80s and 90s dead. Oddly enough, I don't know that I'm going to go back to the 80s and 90s dicks picks that much, but definitely more interested in finding random 80s and 90s shows to listen to and feeling like I have a, a better set of ears for diving into those eras than I used to. Well, I've, I've, I've said this before. I think I picked this one in our preseason Dix Picks draft, but Dix Picks 17 is still one of my favorites. That's the 91 show with Bruce, right, where yeah. uh, uh, I think that's Boston Garden, and September of uh, 91. That's a Dix Picks I'm going to go back to. You know, the thing about jumping between different eras, I think one nice thing about having more 80s and 90s is that it actually makes you appreciate the 70s more. You know, True. You, you hear what they sound like then, if you immerse yourself in that for a while, then you go back to the 70s and you're like, oh, wow, okay. 
And it's not even like you're thinking the 70s is better necessarily. It's just that certain things pop out. And I felt like my palate was just, I was like kind of having too much similar flavored wine. Like I wanted a little <laughs> bit more dynamic range of flavors. Having said all of this, because I feel like we're tipping a little negative here to the Dick's Picks, to talk about right. the Dick's Picks we're going to be doing today, 36, we talked about this when we talked about the other Dick's Picks from September 72. This is definitely an era where you look at the set list and you see songs and you're like, ah, eh, that's not my favorite song. But when this version of The Dead is playing them, it's like the best possible version of those songs. <laughs> like songs that you yeah. think you're sick of. You see Cumberland Blues on there, like, I don't know if I hear, want to hear Cumberland, Cumberland Blues. And then you hear it here, and you're like, holy shit, this is about as well yeah. as this song can be played. So a little preview of our conversation once we get to the record, but I think this is an example of how, you know, if we're feeling exhausted by some of the set lists we've had lately, then you get a show like this where, yeah, the set list almost doesn't matter because they're so on fire that they yeah. can play anything and sound great. Although this is a great set list on this album. Right. You're kind of, we're kind of getting everything you want, really, like on yeah. this album for the most part. I mean, yeah. we don't get in Eyes of the World, that'd be, and we're not getting My Feels Like a Stranger. I was robbed <laughs> of that. But for the most part, man, they're really giving you what you want from The Grateful Dead on Dick's Picks 36. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad we ended with this volume because any sort of jadedness that was creeping in over this last swing of nine episodes uh, was pretty much obliterated by, I think, track two oh, yeah. oh, <laughs> of yeah. this disc. Oh, yeah. And any uh, plans to take a break from listening to The Dead after uh, this project is over, I was like, oh, now maybe I want to hear some more September 72 shows. I feel like I got to dig, dig into this a little more. So, yeah, we're, 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 we're getting out the negativity now, but this is going to be... Uh, a real uh, gusher of an episode, I think. Yeah, I feel like we texted each other at the exact same time when we were listening yeah. to this and we're like, oh, yeah, you know, it's like that John Wick, yeah, I think I'm back, you know, <laughs> gif. Exactly. Drop the gif of the John Wick right there. Uh, let's go to our mailbag here. And I just want to say, you know, we got a lot of light, nice emails from people uh, talking about the show, enjoying the show. We're not going to be able to read them all, but I just wanted to acknowledge if you've written us and you've said nice things, we really appreciate it. It's very kind of you. It's nice to know people are listening and and are getting something out of what but what we've done here. So so thanks again for chiming in. Uh, we, I, I think we did allow one nice email to slip into our mailbag this week. <laughs> we don't like to you know you don't want to read compliments. People complimenting you. It seems a little. Uh, uh, what's the word? E- egotistical or you're, right. you're full of yourself. But, you know, people are giving compliments. We can't ignore it. Uh, do you want to read the first letter, Rob? Yeah, yeah. We'll allow ourselves one complimentary email for the final episode. Uh, we should say, too, like, if you want to keep writing us. Yes, please do. Like the, ma- the, the email address isn't going away. It doesn't cost anything. No. So, 36FTV mailbag at gmail.com. Uh, send us some notes. And uh, yeah, we'll be we'll, we'll happily see them. And if Rob and I fall on financial hard times, who knows? <laughs> this show could be back very soon. If we need to do a cash in right. tour uh, to you know pay off our ex wives and all that stuff, then right, uh, bad investments. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, all right, so this one comes from Shane in Orlando, Florida. Shane says, "Hello, Steve and Rob. Count me among the people you helped appreciate the dead." 
coincidentally, right around the start for the pandemic, I was seeing enough retweets of hot dead takes on my Twitter feed to convince me to re-listen, re-listen to a band that I had written off in my early 20s as a bunch of no-talent hippies without taking the time to really listen to them. Your podcast was starting then, and I figured that it was as good a place as any to find a jumping-off point. I found volumes one and two to be okay, but then Steve recommended Skull and Roses as a good first listen for a fan. Huh. And man, I was hooked. I think we bashed Skull and Roses, ironically, yeah, in the like last episode, too. Yeah, I don't know. Man, that's like a different version of myself. That re- I mean, I, right. still, I like that record, but I wouldn't necessarily give that as the entry point. The first thing you should hear. Yeah, yeah. 2019, but, Steve had different ideas. But it worked for yeah. Shane. So, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe it is a good pick. There's a lot of ways into the dead, man. There's no one way that works. Uh, an episode later, I was transported away to the magical land of the Hollywood Sportatorium uh, and immensely enjoyed Disco Dead as well. Yes. From from there, it's become a journey of discovering every different facet of this band that will never stop fascinating me, even when they're playing Eyes of the World at 185 beats per minute. <laughs> Your podcast has been a companion... Uh, for the entire listening experience I've had so far. And I want to thank you two for helping open my eyes and guiding me along. I always appreciated your honest takes and you never steered me wrong. Good luck to the both of you. Oh. Thanks, Shane. Shane. Very nice email. What a nice guy. The nicest man in Orlando. Right there. <laughs> Not too far from the Hollywood Sportatorium. That's true. Uh, Is that still up? Uh, no, I don't think so. Oh. so. I'm sure it's a strip mall or something. Yeah, oh, that's a bummer. Uh, but yeah, that's great. Uh, I don't know, Shane, it's, 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 it's really cool. I mean, I think we both started this podcast wondering if like the dead now being cool, like was already like a done deal, right? Like it seemed like post fairly well, there was a lot of energy about people getting into the dead who had never seen the dead or weren't old enough to see the dead or like old punks (laughs) and indie rock kids, uh, coming around to the fact that the dead were a lot more interesting than they thought they were. Uh, but I do, I, there, there's still people to convince that the dead are not, you know, what did you say? Burned out hippies. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a never ending, uh, fight to, to, to get the dead into the ears of the people who will appreciate them, even if they don't know it. It's, uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah. It's really nice. It, it, it is funny too, like how the pandemic was like another renaissance for the dead. That, yeah. that just seems like such a common experience. And I don't know, maybe it's because we host a Grateful Dead podcast, uh, why I've heard all these anecdotes. But I feel like there were a lot of people that got into the band uh, because they were just locked up in their house. And yeah. they were like, okay, I will now listen to three-hour shows every day. <laughs> right. And there's 2,000 of them to listen to <laughs> if I want to, yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much, Shane. That was a really nice letter. Let's get to our second letter, and this one comes from Nick in Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City, of course, the uh, location of Dick's Picks 19. Mm-hmm. Another one of my yeah, favorite Dick's Picks. Show. This very yeah. cool 73 show. Hey, guys, I wanted to share another negative review of a pre-Keith 1971 dead show. And just some background, if you listened to our previous episode, we talked about how... Uh, there were all these negative reviews of the shows that were collected on Dick's Picks 35. Uh, rather weirdly, because the dead sound really great on uh, on that record, but uh, apparently there were some haters in the crowd. <laughs> in Chicago. <laughs> not feeling it. Hater town. Hater town, man. Uh, and apparently he found some more negative reviews of 71 Dead. It comes from a book called It's Too Late to Stop Now by John Landau. 
Yeah. And it's a book he found at Half Price Books. And John Landau, by the way, Bruce Springsteen's manager. Yeah. The man- Famously wrote... Uh, what was what is his term in his review? Yeah, he I've wrote a review of rock and roll, and his name is Bruce Springsteen. Yes, he he reviewed Bruce in '74 a live show, and he said, "Yeah, the, I've seen Rock and Roll Future, and its name is Bruce Springsteen." And there's a popular joke playing off of that where uh, it's John Lando saw his, John Lando saw his future, and its name was Bruce Springsteen uh, because <laughs> shortly after that, you know, he ended up being a collaborator with Springsteen. He co-produced uh, Born to Run. Uh, was a trusted musical advisor and then stepped into his management and uh, the rest is history. But, yeah, he uh, was uh, recently seen defending the $4,000 ticket yeah, prices. Not good. Not good, yeah. John Landau. Um, <laughs> so anyway, this, this book is Two at the Stop Now. It's actually like a pretty famous uh, book of music journalism, one of the early kind of rock critic books. And it's cool that you found that at Half Price Books. I've actually tried to buy this myself and copies are like hundreds of dollars hmm. on ebay it's like a pretty rare book well anyway john lando not a fan of the dead here's some things he wrote about the dead in 1971 how long can they go without a good lead singer a good drummer and so detached an attitude Whew. <laughs> uh, another quote they have forgotten how to edit themselves and they force you to listen to so much bad music in order to hear some fine things that it just doesn't seem worth it pretty stock takes so far yeah, is he talking about the dead or about our podcast? Well, it's a good, yeah, we could, could go either way. Uh, next quote: No one really knows why Mickey Hart left the group, but Bill Kreutzmann is not a good enough drummer to carry them along. Oh, oh, John, cross the line there, my friend. Cross the, the line. Poorly, yeah. La- uh, here's another quote: The group does certain things that are incontestably atrocious. Well, you're not going to argue with that. I mean, I'm going to give him that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> they do, but we love them. That's part of what's right. great about them. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, the letter continues. I don't know what's wrong with John Landau, but Billy can do whatever he wants, in my opinion. Yes, hell yeah. Love the show. Please keep going in any way if possible. Nick from Oklahoma City. Uh, so yeah, John Landau, not a fan of the Grateful Dead. Yeah, I think. I mean, and so Landau is kind of in that generation of like early rock writing, right? You're yeah, like Lester Bangs. Oh yeah, he's he's an OG. All those guys, and I, I don't feel like any of them really like the dead. Like, I, I can't remember if Lester Bangs ever wrote about the dead, but I can't imagine him liking him very much. I think I, I think Landau in particular, he was a big uh, proponent of, uh, like, he loved R&B, he loved soul music, mm-hmm. and I think he really right. subscribed to the idea of, like, songs should be two and a half minutes, should, you know be very professional in the studio, you know, sort of like that Motown model. Uh, And like no looseness, no jamming. I mean, that's really an aesthetic that he helped bring to Springsteen's records. Because if you listen to Springsteen pre-Landau, Springsteen's pretty jammy on his early records. And then it gets... very like uh, Dylan-y, long-winded, lots of verses. Yeah. And, and, And also just like long songs that have like, you know, these extended ex- instrumental passages, you know, like on mm-hmm. the Wild Indians and East Street's Shuffle. I mean, that's the record before Landau entered the picture. Um, I did want to read this thing. Uh, Springsteen writes a little bit about the dead in his book, Born to Run, that came out in 2016. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. interesting. 
Because it's going to start out bad, but then there's like a twist ending to this. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'll just read this. He said, In the 70s, I went to a Grateful Dead show at a community college. I watched the crowd swaying and doing its trance dance thing, and I stood very outside of it. To me, sober, non-mystical, only half-hippie, if that me, they sounded like a not-very-talented bar band. I went home gently mystified. I don't know if the Grateful Dead were great, but I know that they did something great. Years later, when I came to appreciate their subtle musicality, Jerry Garcia's beautifully lyrical guitar playing, and the, feel, and the folk purity of their voices, I understood that I'd missed it. They had a unique ability to build community, and sometimes it ain't what you're doing, but what happens while you're doing it that counts. So, like, he's not saying, like, at the end there, I think they're an amazing band. I think it sounds to me where it, it's like I respect that they created this world around the music right. that people were plugged into and you can't deny that. Mm-hmm. So Bruce kind of started in Landau territory, but then I think he came <laughs> to a place that, you know, seems pretty reasonable to me. Yeah. I think that's the thing that like, whether you like their music or not, you can't deny that they, they had something special and something unique. Like nobody sounded like the dead. Right. Still nobody sounds like the dead. Even the cover bands that tried to sound like the dead. Um, it's They had an alchemy that is impossible to reproduce. And they just did it for so long and so like uncompromisingly that like a guy like Springsteen has to respect it, right? Like, oh, yeah. Um, even if that's not his not his scene, as he said. So, yeah. And, you know, and, and he's inspired a similarly obsessive fan base that... Uh, collect bootlegs and sure. pour over. I mean, you know, if we're talking about like the most bootleg artists of all time, like dead and Springsteen are like right up there. I mean, I think the most bootlegged artist is probably Bob Dylan. Yeah. And then it'd be the dead after that. But then Springsteen might be third, you know? Yeah. I, it's some kind of order there. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Uh, let's get to the Dick's picks here. Talk about the context of the release here. This this record came out in October of 2005. Do you remember what you were doing in October 2005, Rob? <laughs> Same thing as I was doing, you know, three months ago. Just logging my way through grad school. I'm, I'm trying to look up how long of a gap there was until uh, road trips started. So road trips didn't start until 2007, late 2007. So the dead kind of took to you know the archive kind of took two years off after this. They they went on their own little hiatus. Do you think there were other there, there must have been like other live albums though that right. they were dropping? Well, so three from the vault is in between there. Uh, live at the Cow Palace, which is New Year's Eve, nineteen. Oh, uh, I have that one. It's in there, uh, and then they were. Uh, there's a whole bunch of Grateful Dead download series releases, uh. which kind of took the place of Dick's Picks for a while. I think they were kind of like. Uh, the CD is going away. Nobody will ever listen to CDs again. Right. Uh, there will never be a CD revival in the future. Uh, the internet is the future, so let's just release shows uh, online. So, yeah. So it's uh, you know, it, it it's interesting that they decided to just you know bring the Dick's Pick series to an end. And I wasn't able to dig up like why that happened like why why did they had this brand going for 36 volumes i don't know if uh you know dave lemieux doesn't seem like a you know to have the the type of ego (laughs) where he's like we gotta we gotta change the name on this series it's the guy's been dead for for 10 for five years now uh but uh yeah they they decided to go a different direction and road trips you know has like a sort of like different format i think they wanted to get out of the box of like releasing 
full shows, which is kind of where Dick's Picks wound up, and that's why you have all these beefy releases here in the last the last run. Yeah, and I mean, do we know if they knew this was the end? I mean, because there is a significance with Dick of picking the show, but also thirty six. It's an odd number to end on. You'd feel like why don't just <laughs> it's true. why not just make it to an even forty? Uh, yeah. Or stop at 35. I, I, I wonder how premeditated it was to stop here. Uh, or, yeah, I, or if they put this out and then s- someone from up on high was like, eh, that's it. You know, you're canceled. Right. We're going to do other things. Yeah. No, I, I don't I don't know. But it does seem, you know, given the the show that they picked, it does feel very much like a we're acknowledging that we've come full circle here. Uh, because this is a show that Dick wanted to pick very early on uh, in the Dick's Pick series, but was shut down. Yes, by Phil. Yes. Which is a funny story here, because and we've talked about this before. Phil was more involved in Dick's Picks early on, and he insisted in Dick's Picks 1 that his rock and bass solo be cut <laughs> out of, what was that? It was like, after he's gone. Yeah, it's like in the intro to the other one, right. basically. And he, uh, and he he nixed his bass solo from there, uh, which you can hear on Live Archive if you really want to right. hear the Dick's Picks I think we one. actually put it... Oh no, oh, no, we weren't doing music yet in the first episode. No. You can go on there and uh, and listen to we it. We were yeah. primitive, man. In the early, that, was a, that was our primitive uh, dead period. Um, but... Yeah, so do you want to tell this story about like, yeah. like how this ended up being released finally? Well, so, I mean, it basically comes down to, <clears throat> like, yeah, as you were saying, I mean, that, that that's kind of the full story, is that they when they started the Dick's Pick series, Dick would find a tape that he wanted to release. Uh, they would uh, have to get band approval, but nobody else in the band cared uh, except for Phil. And Phil was the most particular about these releases and would only hear, like, the reasons why they shouldn't release something rather than, you know, the the, the good, the positive reasons to release a particular show. Uh, so as you say, he argued into to uh, cut out his bass solo from December 73. Uh, I noticed in this show, there's a pretty good Phil bass solo, which brings us full circle too, that by this point, Phil didn't care. So they were able to sneak it in. Uh, and then uh, Dick got the 1973 show out. And then he said, all right, the next one I'm going to do is a 72 show. Uh, and this was the show that he wanted to release. This should have been Dick's Picks 2. Uh, but it was held back by for a couple reasons. One, they didn't want to release full shows yet. They didn't want to go longer than two discs. Uh, and this show is actually four and a half hours long. <laughs> it's like a ridiculously long concert. Uh, so three and a half discs were necessary, at least, to uh, to put it out. Um, and then, yeah, Phil, just for whatever reason, didn't like this show. So, uh, What was I think his it was problem a... with this show? I, I, I was thinking about it. Like, what would he objected to? I, I, it blows <laughs> yeah. my mind. Yeah, I have no idea. Like, that, that would be... A fascinating question to ask him if he even remembers. But eventually, they all talked Phil into removing himself from the process. And that opened up the floodgates for more Dick's Picks to come out. I mean, it took uh, two years <laughs> for Dick's Picks 2 to come out after Dick's Picks 1. And then they finally got into a, this steady, like, three or four a, a year release schedule. So, uh, yeah. So, the, the the reason why this show seemed like a fitting way to end the series, I think, is that, you know... Uh, 
Dick had picked it out very early and didn't have the uh, the band backing to release it at the time. So now that the band no longer cares or is paying attention to the Dick Pick series, they were able to get it out. And another uh, special thing about this release is, well, it's an Owsley tape. He recorded this show. He also wrote the liner notes for the physical copy, mm-hmm. uh, which is it's pretty fascinating to peer into the mind of Bear when you read the liner notes. And and I have to say, peering into his mind, it's kind of a boring experience. Uh, <laughs> more boring maybe than you would expect because it's yeah. very technical. Uh-huh. And and this is not this is my problem. It's not Bear's problem because Bear obviously he's this audio genius, and in the liner notes he like he basically lays out his philosophy for like where mics should be placed, you know where amps should be placed on stage, and he goes into great detail describing like how far a mic should be from a drum, how far you know speakers should be placed next to each other on stage. And if I were also an audio genius, this would be much more interesting to me, I'm sure. But as someone who's just a, a mere mortal in the in the me in, in the ways of sonic uh, esoteria, uh, I was kind of lost reading it. I mean, my impression of the liner notes is that for Owsley taping shows, I'm sure it was about the music, but it seemed like it was at least as much about wanting to see like what the sound was like. You yep. know, to see how like well his uh, his practices were, were were being you know carried out at these shows, and that's why he wanted to listen to it, like to see yeah. like how good it sounded or how not good it sounded. Right, I think Owsley was a scientist at heart, and the Grateful Dead were his laboratory, <laughs> and so like the music was maybe almost uh, you know beside the point uh, for him to to tinker around with technology and come up with new ways of making concerts sound better and making tapes sound better and making, you know, new interesting sounds that weren't possible in a, in a rock band setting before. Uh, I was reading a little bit about this period of Owsley being with the dead. And so of course he was in jail from, he used to be their sound man, but then he had to go to jail in 1970 through 1972. He got out in the summer and rejoined the crew for this tour and I guess he just pissed everybody off, <laughs> like in this month of September, uh, because he thought that he was going back to being the top sound guy for the dead. Uh, and he had all these ideas, which I think, in part, the liner notes are like grudges he's been holding for, you know, 40, 30 some years at this point, uh, about how he wanted to rearrange the dead's live sound when he rejoined the band in fall of 72. Uh, but it, in the two years he was away, the dead had, you know, grown up this crew of roadies who did thing a very, things a very particular way. They were not uh, the types of people who would be easily swayed by someone coming in and saying, uh, I want you to do things totally different and spend a lot more time setting up than you had uh, have been doing previously. And so there's a lot of clashes, I think, between the, the, the dead crew and Owsley coming back on the scene. So he was pretty much phased out of the band <laughs> by the next month. So September 72 is this like brief flash of Owsley being on tour with them and actually recording and trying to control the sound. Uh, then he kind of was sidelined to work on the wall of sound uh, with Alembic and the other uh, dead sort of sound wizards that they worked with. Uh, but he wasn't on tour, like, running live sound uh, at all these shows. So, um, But, yeah, here he is, and he's running the tape, and the tape sounds 
like ridiculously good. It sounds great. <laughs> it is such a good recording. Yeah, it sounds great. Obviously, yeah, I was thinking about Owsley versus like the Betty Boards because obviously, you know, the, those are the two gold standards for Grateful Dead tapes, and and I don't know how much to ascribe, you know, to you know Betty or Owsley here, but I I do feel like the Betty Boards they have this sort of again buttery big bottom end that I always associate with her recordings and with Owsley. It's also great, but there's always like a little bit more of an edge to it. I feel like, especially mm-hmm. like in the guitar tones, like it feels like it's not quite as bottom heavy. It's more, I don't want to say shrill because that's has a negative connotation. Like I like what Owsley is doing. It just seems to have like a different kind of energy to it at the top. Like, does that make yeah. any sense to you? Yeah, totally. I mean, Phil is the one that I think, is done the least amount of service by an Owsley tape. And throughout this volume too, I think he's not, he's certainly not as audible as you get on like those 77, 76, late seventies, Betty boards. Maybe that's why Phil didn't like it. (laughs) He's like, you can't hear me. I'm not loud enough. I mean, you can still hear him. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think he's definitely a presence uh, on this record, but uh, yeah, it's just like it, there's not as much emphasis, just like a little less maybe when Owsley's doing it versus mm-hmm. Betty. Both great though, and yeah. uh, obviously, anytime you're getting anything recorded by either one of those people, you're gonna have something good. Um, getting back to uh, Dick's stance on this show, it's interesting because you dug out some some notes that Dick took about like the last half of '72, and I think I don't know if we talked about this in our previous. September 72 shows because we're not going to dig too much into the dead context of this show in, in that month because right. we've already gone over that. Go back to Dick's Picks 11 and 23 if you want a refresher <laughs> on that. But um, I don't know if you want to talk about this. Like Dick's love of this show and also like him hating on a very well regarded show from this time because <laughs> Dick, he is that kind of classic deadhead guy who's like not going to go for the shows that everyone loves. Like he kind of trashes the shows that everyone loves and he's going after things that are maybe a little less uh, heralded. Right. Yeah. He hated Cornell for instance, or he didn't hate it, but he was like, I am never going to release this show because that was overrated. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Maybe less well known is that he also thought that the Vanita show eight twenty seven seventy two was, was overrated. um, Yeah. Which I think might, you know, there's, I, I, you know, people usually argue between those two shows as like the great '70s shows, the the tapes you must have that every every deadhead starts with, uh, has another spectacular dark star. Uh, but yeah, he he didn't like that show either. He said it was the most overrated show in Grateful Dead history outside of five eight seventy seven. Uh, it says it has some, some exciting playing, but doesn't hold up as a whole show. There are many better examples where the playing is more consistently strong throughout the show. And these shows include, he lists off a whole day, number of dates, but uh, leads off with September 21st, the show we have here. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, you can find this. He did like a, I think it was a message board post where he basically ran down like the second half of 1972 uh, and talked about all of his favorite shows. Um, you know, Dick had the privilege of, you know, having the vault <laughs> at his fingertips to listen to all these shows. So it's a little unfair that he's bashing the tapes that everybody has in favor of what were possibly some more obscure tapes to find in through 
traditional tape trading, but whatever. That's his right. Well, and and, and he really loves the Dark Star Morning Dew from the show that we're going to be talking about today, the from 921. And I guess we'll get to it, but, you know, makes a pretty compelling case, you know? I mean, yeah. if you're talking about Dark Stars, uh, this is no slouch. I'll just say that for now. Right. And he also, uh, at various times, I think, described this as his favorite Dark Star, but with Dick, that answer changed a lot. So he... Uh, Never had the same answer twice, I think, when you asked him what his favorite Dark Star was. Uh, he mentioned in his notes, yeah, that it's his, he thinks it might be the best one. I think he means of all the Dark Stars that go into Morning Dew, of which there are a handful through 72, 73, 74. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, he, he, likes, he lists a whole bunch of songs that he liked from this show, that all of which we'll talk about. And, uh, yeah, I think he just thought it was better top to bottom then Vanita, and then, you know, some other shows that people maybe talked up a little bit more. Maybe Dick didn't like the Naked Pole guy. He didn't like <laughs> that this attracted from Vanita for him. Yeah. Uh, I did want to bring up one historical thing that I don't think we mentioned in the other September 72 shows, and it's directly uh, in proximity to this Philadelphia show. Um, the Dead played in Philadelphia on September 21st. Uh, they played in Connecticut on September 23rd. On September 22nd, and there's proof that this actually happened, Jerry Garcia played a show in San Francisco. Oh, man. With Merle Saunders. It was a benefit show for the United Farm Workers Union. Just another strike against people who say the dead uh, weren't a political band. Uh, but it's been confirmed that he, um, I don't know if it was right after this show, maybe the next morning, got on a plane, flew back to San Francisco, played the show with Merle, got on a plane, flew back to the dead played the show in Connecticut uh, on Saturday night. So, uh, you know, maybe nowadays that doesn't seem so crazy. You got people flying around all the time. That seems crazy to me. One day business trip. But uh, yeah, 1972 in particular, that would have been very, very strange to to do a cross country flight. Jet lag from hell on that swing, I would say. Yeah. That doesn't sound good at all. uh, September 23rd is another show that Dick listed as one of his favorites from this month. So I haven't heard that show, but it sounds like he didn't get uh, jet lagged. He was doing just fine. Jet lag Jer, maybe just it's a different zone for him. It just, uh, he he was outside of all zones of all kinds in September of uh, 72, transcending (laughs) all means of containing space and time. Um, Let's talk about the venue that we're going to be at. Uh, for the most part today, and that's the Spectrum in Philadelphia. This is one of the legendary arenas, I feel like, of like the arena rock era. Uh, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about... Uh, basically, everyone played this place. And, yeah. and in many cases, like multiple times. Uh, but it, it was opened in uh, 1967. It was the home of the uh, Philadelphia 76ers. I think the Flyers played there as well. There's yep. also an arena football team indoor soccer, and lacrosse. Um, the Grateful Dead played there more than any other act. They played there 53 times. And yeah. uh, there's a bunch of live records that uh, have been released from here, including like multiple Dave's picks mm-hmm. recorded at the Spectrum. I think see- It's kind of odd that we got this far into Dick's picks with that one, because there was a Philadelphia show, but it was at the Civic Center Yeah, in 74, not at the Spectrum. So for some reason... Maybe the Spectrum was already booked and they had to play the Civic Center. So the Dead played there more than anyone. Uh, Springsteen played there 42 times. I think he must be like the second most yeah. uh, 
he played there 42 times between 76 and 2009. He played there, he played four shows there in mid-October of 2009. Uh, and so he was among the last people to play there. Uh, and then Pearl Jam, uh, closed out the venue at the end of October. They did a four show stand. Their last show was October 31st, 2009. Uh, over that run, they played 103 different songs. And on the Halloween show, they played for three and a half hours. They played 41 songs. Wow. PJ digging deep (laughs) for that. So, uh, you are about to be a, uh, published Pearl Jam scholar. Yes. Uh, soon after this episode drops, uh, why did Pearl Jam play there? I mean, I don't think of them as a East coast band at all. Uh, why, why, why were they the, the closing act for the spectrum? seems like an odd choice. Well, you know, I, well, for one thing, I'm, I'm guessing routing comes into play here. I mean, Springsteen seems like that would have been the obvious choice Mm -hmm. to close it out, but he was, uh, I looked at his tour schedule in 2009. He played in St. Louis, October 25th, and then he was in D.C. November 2nd. So I don't know why. They were, they're, they're, hey, Jerry's a, flying across the country to do I don't know <laughs> what's going on shows. there. But um, I will say Pearl Jam, uh, Philadelphia is a stronghold for, for Pearl Jam. You know, they, I believe their first show that they played in Philly was like a month and a half before 10 came out. So they were going there very early on. I think that was like one of the, first major markets that really embraced them there's been you know there's been other historic pearl jam shows that have taken place in philadelphia that halloween 2009 one is a big one there's also a show that they played in 2016 uh where they played 10 from front to back for the first and probably last time and that's a very (laughs) famous show that was done in honor of they hung a banner in the new arena in philadelphia the wells fargo center commemorating 10 shows in I think it was South Philadelphia. I don't know my directions in Philly, but it's something <laughs> like that. It was like some. It wasn't just at that venue. I think it was like in that part of Philadelphia. I don't know if that was including shows that they played at the Spectrum as well. Uh, but Philadelphia is weird, man. They don't like count. <laughs> if you played a Western Philadelphia show, it doesn't go on the banner. I don't know. I <laughs> I could be misrem- misremembering this, but it's something like that. It was like like a part of. Oh, here's the banner right here. Yeah, South. Yeah. Oh, it's ten South Philadelphia sellouts. Okay, is the banner wow. that hangs in the Wells Fargo Center. So that banner went up. Eddie Vedder saw it. And he's like, "Let's play ten tonight." It was a spur of the moment okay. decision. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah, they're not an East Coast band, but I think that's a big Pearl Jam city. Any. How many arena rock bands are there at this? Well, point? that's what I was gonna guess. Is just that, like, yeah, Pearl Jam is like. The only band out there to <laughs> to do these things at some point. Yeah. When, when Springsteen dies out and other bands. I mean, like I was trying to think, there's not really like an iconic Philly band that could uh Not in that time. Done it, right? It's no, weird, right? Not... Uh, they're all like New Jersey bands, like across across state lines. You know, at some point when they close the Wells Fargo Center, if the war on drugs are big enough, maybe that they could play <laughs> something like that. But yeah, there's not really yeah. a you know, boys to men. You get you got, I, I I put that up there. I also put Hooters. Yeah, <laughs> I think well, have, Hooters might be the biggest Philly band. Well, you have like you know Gamble and Huff, like all the Philly soul stuff from the seventies. You get a oh, package sure. tour for that. Get the yeah. OJ's together. Get uh, you know uh, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. Yeah, uh, get them going. 
uh, spinners, all those guys. <laughs> There's also another famous story at the Spectrum about Pink Floyd when they were playing there in 77 on the Animals Tour, and uh, right. Roger Waters had some sort of uh, ailment at the show, and they gave him an injection, and basically it was the beginning of the song Comfortably Numb. Right. Was inspired by a show in Philadelphia. And when Pearl Jam played that 2016 show, they covered Comfortably None numb and they reference that story That's uh, cool. also i should say just to tie it together a little bit more elvis presley played one of his last shows at the spectrum in 1977 and bruce springsteen was at that show in the audience oh, wow. yeah a lot of rock history there of- uh, I, li- I like your other note in the notes was that aerosmith played there a lot and uh the fans threw glass bottles and m80s <laughs> which uh was a good mem- uh, a good uh, reminder that we are in Philadelphia, the the land of rowdy fans, right? Yeah, Aerosmith played there twenty three times between seventy six and ninety four. I think that was like a common thing in the seventies, like where people would bring M eighties to shows and throw them. Because uh, if you listen to bootlegs from the seventies, I feel like there's people complaining about that, you know, throwing fireworks and. And stuff. Just in Philadelphia or everywhere? I think it was. I think it was everywhere. I think it was just <laughs> Philly. It might have been a little worse in Philly. Yeah. Uh, who knows? Uh, but yeah, just an, an historic venue. And again, yeah, like you said, it's weird that we haven't been to the Spectrum before now. Yeah, it's good to be there now. Uh, in 1972, just a great period to be at the Spectrum. Um, we're also at Folsom Field in Boulder, Colorado, and this is like. Uh, Super old stadium. I, I I wasn't that familiar with Folsom Field. Um, yeah. This is like almost like a hundred years old. Yeah, it's an outdoor yeah, football we'll be stadium. In two years. Yeah. Like yeah, it's opened it, in 1924, and I I think like the University of Colorado, like it's like their stadium. Mm-hmm. Right. It's the the uh, the Buffaloes play in Folsom Field. Yeah, I was surprised that the Dead um, were playing such big venues. In the fall of 72, because Dix Picks 11 was in the Stanley Theater in Jersey City. So they did play multiple nights there, I guess. Uh, Dix Picks 23 was in the Baltimore Civic Center, so that was an arena. But yeah, you're getting like one of the big basketball arenas and, you know, an entire football stadium. Something that I think of, you know, being more of like a 90s dead thing. Uh, but our, already as early as 72, they were able to, I'm sure, not sell out, but pack enough fans in that they were able to play at a, at a stadium. Yeah, and you know, in Colorado, I mean that's always been jam band. A lot band. of hippies. Yeah, a lot of jam band people. You can do well there. Even today, and, you know, you got Goose doing Red Rocks. <laughs> right. They're not playing a venue that size in most parts of the country, but you can do that in Colorado. And then, you know, Philadelphia is part of that East Coast cabal of you know, jam band stronghold out there. So, yeah, they could probably definitely, they're probably not playing stadiums or arenas in the middle of the country. I'm, I'm right. trying to remember, did we just do 72 shows, like from September? Like, were there any other 72? I don't think so. I think they were all. Well, we, yeah, we did the, all the September ones are East Coast, and then the March ones were in New York as well. Oh, right. Okay. Music. That's right. Uh, so, yeah, one odd thing about Folsom Field, uh, which probably isn't true of many venues that are this old, 
is that Dead & Company have actually played there more than the Dead did. Oh. Uh, Dead & Company played runs there uh, every year from 2016 to 2019 uh, and then played two shows there just this summer. So I believe they've played 10 shows. I think those were all two-night runs uh, at Folsom Field in Boulder. So it's a it's a Dead & Company stronghold. Uh, Mayor has uh, dominance over Jerry on playing the Folsom Field stage. There you go. It's, it's also... Uh... More than a mile above sea level is the third highest stadium in America. Wow. <laughs> Super high. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, Super yeah. high, dude. Uh, so Wyoming and uh, uh, Air Force, I guess, are the two. Wow. Air Force? I guess Air Force, they insisted <laughs> on having a higher stadium at the Air Force. set up the scene looking at what else was popular in uh, september of 72 and we probably covered like a lot of this already yeah in our previous we've been in this week before yeah. yeah so we can breeze through this a little bit number one song mac davis baby don't get hooked on me i i, I know we talked about mac davis already right yes we we did a mac davis deep dive yeah uh we talked about three dog night too i think maybe not about this particular song but they were number two with black and white uh then you had oh, backstabbers. That was that was one of the uh, the Philly bands, right? That's OJ's. Yeah. Uh, so Philadelphia is uh, rallying around their home team. Yeah. So on num- the charts. Yeah. Number one album, Chicago Five. I know we talked about Chicago and uh, Rod Stewart. Never a dull moment. We had a Rod Stewart argument on this show already. We can <laughs> we could set that aside. Dig into the back pages. Number one film, The Godfather. Of course. It was- Still doing it. I think it might have been number one at the March shows, too. So uh, it was hanging on. Makes sense. Um, Number one TV show, of course, All in the Family. (laughs) Enough said there. Uh, What else was on TV around this time? You dug out some cool stuff here. Another one with uh, some movies in the top. Valley of the Dolls. A showing of Valley of the Dolls was number two on CBS. Uh I always get Valley of the Dolls and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls confused. Oh, yeah. Which one is the real one and which one is the parody, but... Very different movies. this was the real one, yeah. <laughs> if it was on CBS. Yeah, they couldn't show Beyond the Valley of the Dolls on, on TV. Yeah, it's kind of porny, right? I don't well, know. Well, it's I've Russ Meyer, so there's right. like a lot of leering... So it's a great movie. It's very funny. Written by Roger Ebert. Right, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, definitely not a movie you could show on network television in 1972. Uh, I figured not. There was a TV movie called With Six You Get Egg Roll, which sounds uh, not uh, uh, modern sensibilities. Yeah, <laughs> I think it was good. like a Brady Bunch thing. Oh, dude. Uh, with like a Chinese restaurant joke uh, in the title. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, you know, a lot of stuff we've seen before. Bridget Loves Bernie, Hawaii Five-0, The Flip Wilson Show. 
Uh, with I looked up, I found that that week their guests were the fifth fifth dimension and Tim oh, Conway. There you go. Fifth dimension also came up on a thirty six from the vault episode, I believe, when we talked about the the Questlove movie. So, yes. Yeah, we are. We're revisiting all of our old favorites. Yes. Here. Yes. Go back to the old episode. You don't need to hear us talk about this again. Um, <laughs> one thing you dug out that yeah. is pretty awesome. Liam Gallagher was born on the day of the show. On the day of the Spectrum show. So uh, too bad I found out about that yesterday because we could have tried to get Liam Gallagher to be our great special guest. Oh, for man. <laughs> the final episode. Could you imagine? Oh, man. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying. To, I wonder if Liam has ever heard a Grateful Dead song. <laughs> I'm guessing yeah. probably not. Maybe like 10 seconds of one, and then he threw his stereo across the room. That'd be amazing. I'd love to have Liam Gallagher on here talking about the Grateful <laughs> Dead. We would definitely get the little explicit E uh, square uh, for this episode. He would set the record for uh, most use of the C word on uh, oh, man. 36 from the Vault episode. Well, hey, don't <laughs> challenge me. You know, I, I, I'll be happy to uh, go toe-to-toe with Liam Gallagher. Uh, for that, if, if need be. <laughs> what is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, here we are. At the finish line, baby. Dick's Picks 36. Going to the Spectrum in Philadelphia at 921.72 with a little pit stop in Boulder, Colorado at Folsom Field on 9.372. We got a yeah. four-banger here. Another hearty meal. For... It was a long show, man. Yeah. All the, all, all the stories I found about this show uh, were people in high school. It was a Thursday night going to this Grateful Dead show. Uh, thinking that they would get what was typical for a rock show at the time, which is, you know, a couple bands each playing like an hour, 90 minutes, maybe. Uh, and I think they all got home at like, you know, two in the morning because the dead 
just went on and played and played and played and played. Uh, so all their stories were about, you know, limping into school the next day and trying to explain the experience to all their uh, friends who weren't so lucky to go. So yeah. Sounds pretty awesome. Yeah. And if as if that weren't enough, we also get, what, about like 45 minutes of like the Folsom Field show, too? Yeah. A little, uh, a very, a heavy dessert. Yes. <laughs> like Like a real thick piece of pie yes at the very end of this show so that's right we're yeah we're binge eating today with dick's picks yeah. 36 uh well, let's talk about the first disc here and i'm just gonna reiterate something i said earlier and this is something i've said about other september 72 shows but you look at this disc and you might think okay well i know what i'm getting here but even the songs that are overly familiar you know you're getting even like El Paso or Big Railroad Blues or Big River, uh, it's like A-plus versions of those songs. You know, if, if you think you're sick of them, be prepared to not skip anything because the, the, the dead's bring in the heat even on like the sort of standard issue material. Yeah, and I, I counted it up. I think there are six songs on this disc that were on the last volume. And that's been like our one of our big complaints all season. I feel like is that there's a lot of repeats, you know, not just on a particular volume, but from volume to volume. Uh, the the thirty three to thirty four, seventy six to seventy seven shows were very similar. Uh, but this one, I think it's great because you get to hear just like how much they changed in thirteen months, and what it really drove home for me is that I think Keith really turned this band around i mean it's a, it's it's a, a little bit of losing big pen but i think people underestimate what a huge influence keith had particularly on this 72 to 74 zone and like we heard some really early keith shows like dick's picks 2 is like the first week keith is in the band and he sounds a little lost and he's not really like much of a creative force in that show uh the the march 72 shows like Pigpen is still around. Keith is finding his footing. I like those shows a lot, but it wasn't really like Keith didn't really pop out that much. Uh, but this show, all of these songs that get repeated are better here. And I liked the 71 show quite a bit as well, but they're definitely better here. And it's just like Keith's piano opens up a totally new sound for the dead. They are no longer this like country rock, like, you know, Chuglefest. Uh, having Keith there is already pushing them in the jazzier directions of 73 and 74. Uh, so it's really fun to listen to, uh, these shows in juxtaposition, I think. And I'll repeat my off said comment on here. I love hearing Keith. I love yeah. how audible he is like on this tape. He just sounds so good and he's not buried in the mix. It's so crisp and he's just floating through these songs and it's so great. And, you know, Dick's Picks 35, you know, we talked a lot about, I know for me, just learning to really, really appreciate what Pigpen brought to the band and really loving the swagger that he brought to, like, the bluesier material and, and even enjoying some of, like, the songs that he wrote himself that they didn't play very often. And so, like, I, I really love the version of The Dead that we hear on Dick's Picks 35. But you're right, having Keith be so prominent at this time on Dick's Picks 36. It's it's just beautiful. And 
the moment that we were texting each other simultaneously when listening to this was when Birdsong comes up, yeah. the second song here. And that is like, okay, we are in Keith territory. This is not the dead that could have... This is not Dick's Picks 35. They could not have done Birdsong in that iteration of the dead. Yeah. And, not, and played it the way that they played here. Uh, just beautiful. And it just makes me uh it just reinforces in my mind that that is one of the very best vehicles for this band like that 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 song uh and that i think that's another reason why people love vanita like the bird song on there is so good yeah um but man when you get a first set bird song buckle up you know yeah of seven you know i like guess 72 dead playing bird song doesn't get much better than that yeah I mean, this show, this disc kind of fakes us out because it starts with the promised land. And I'm like, oh man, we're going to get all of the 36 FTV annoyances <laughs> here for the final episode. Turns out we don't. There's no Jed in this show. They were playing Jed a lot in September 72, but somehow we missed it. And there's only one Barry. We only get the one Barry at the very start. It goes by really fast and it actually sounds pretty good. We love, we, we, Always admit that we love a Promised Land opener. It's a great way to open the show. Oh, yeah. Uh, but then immediately it dives into this bird song. And, you know, shout out, early thank you. We'll get more thank yous later on. But to our, like, unofficial social media intern, Ryan Storm, who would always come through at the 36 from the Vault memes when every episode came out. I had the Vince McMahon meme in my mind while I was listening to this bird song because, first of all, Bob sounds incredible. I always love his chords in the verses of Birdsong, that like ascending chord thing he does. His tone sounds so good. Then you got Billy. We talked about his swing in the last volume, but he is like, you know, 10 times that now. He is just the jazziest drummer, uh, but can also, you know, shift on a dime into being a rock or a country drummer, any kind of drummer you want. But on Birdsong especially, he's just got so much swing, so much fluidity in his drumming. Then you get Jerry Solo, which of course is incredible. Birdsong Jerry Solo. And then you get a Keith Solo, and I had never noticed this before. I don't know how I didn't notice this, but Keith is actually playing a wah grand piano on his solo in Birdsong. Did you know this? Had you ever noticed this? No. <laughs> I think it's because the tape is so good and Keith is so prominent for once that I was like... I, he gets into the solo, and I'm like, wait, did Jerry take over? Is Jerry playing a wah pedal solo over Keith? That's kind of rude. And then I'm like, no, that's definitely a keyboard. But Keith didn't have an electric piano in 72. That's a 73, 74 Keith thing. And so I was like, so how in the world is he playing a wah pedal with a grand piano, which is what he played? So I looked it up, and it turns out uh, Owsley didn't build this, but another guy, Carl, uh, Carl Countryman, like another... Uh, like weirdo San Francisco audio guy of the seventies that just like always somehow found the dead, uh, created this like electronic pickup setup for Keith's piano, which I guess was a real pain in the ass to set up, but it was the only way they could figure out how to mic a piano well on a big arena sound system. Uh, but because you were using this control box with electronic pickups in it, uh, Picking up the sound from the piano, you could route it through any effects pedal you wanted. Uh, so sure enough, Keith would do wah pedal piano, which is like, it sounds so cool. And then second of all, like Keith was not really known for experimenting with the sound very much. So it's so fun to hear this like early version of Keith that is trying something 
very unusual. I mean, it's so unusual. It's almost like a early like MIDI experiment uh, uh, for for farther down the line in Grateful Dead uh, sounds. So yeah, I just loved it. This bird song like floored me, <laughs> and I was like, I, I can now can no longer be say that I'm tired of listening to the Dead. This is uh, it brought me right back in. I do think it's funny, and there's a more egregious example later on in this album, but on the first disc, you do get this transcendent bird song, and then they go into El Paso, which is such a funny <laughs> transition, you know, to yeah. go from the you go from heaven to like you know cowboy Bob. It's still the first set, yeah. <laughs> so. There's an even funnier like whiplash moment later on that we'll talk about, uh, <laughs> where it's like, oh man, I guess. If you get so high, you have to come down at some point. You, especially this early in the show. Uh, I also want to shout out, and you know, these aren't as mind blowing maybe as the bird song, but again, speaking of songs that maybe you've heard a lot but just hit differently in this era of the dead, Jack Straw and Loser, I think, are played so well. And yeah, we've talked about Loser before. I've been critical of like Loser in '77 because I feel like the tempo gets a little sloppy Joe with that song with two drummer yeah. dead. And this just reiterates like loser in 72 is just different. And it, it goes to another level. And I, I just think this performance is so good. And I'm like, yeah, I was right. 72 dead playing loser is where it's at. And I yeah. don't know, not that they didn't play well after this, but like, this is like the best era for that song. And I love that song so much. Yeah, I think I want to say it was volume 33. I think there was a loser on that one from 76 where I tried to make the argument that it was the best loser on a Dick's Pick so far. And you were like, eh, I don't know, there's these other ones. And I was like, ah, yeah, but they all had some flaws. Well, I, I mean, this is the best loser on a Dick's Pick. <laughs> they saved yeah. the best for last. Like, it is so good. And like, I was just like endlessly impressed by. We talk a lot about tempo on this show, about things being too fast or things being too slow or the drummers being like a train wreck. Um, part of why I think this Fall 72 sound is so solid is that they, it's like they just found the sweet spot 
on tempo for everything. And it, 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 like I said, it, it's, it's part Keith, the, how much the piano adds, but then also, you know, finding thing, finding this middle tempo that is not too slow, not too fast. It just opens up the song so much. It's like, they just found the perfect amount of space to play a song like loser, or even a, a song like Jack straw, which is a little more up tempo, but you need to have that sort of slower beginning so that it really pops by the end, right? It's like people say the national anthem, you can't start singing it too high or else you're screwed by the end. Like Jack Straw needs to have that dynamic. Uh, and they just have it. And I don't know if it's just they played so many shows in 72, you know, the Europe tour, of course, sharpened all of these songs. But the dramatic difference between 71 and 72, it's just all over this disc. It's really fascinating to hear. Well, and, you know, we could sound like a broken record singing Keith's praises here and also Billy on this record. And we talked about this with the other September 72 shows, just how he's such a beast man, like with his swing and his power and his timing, I feel like is just perfect. And it's funny to think to that John Landau book that we referenced earlier where he's taking shots at Billy, I guess that's 71 Billy, which I think he was pretty great in 71 too. But it's like so, it's like just the worst take that you could have on <laughs> on Billy, man. I mean, I, I just feel like his drumming here is like some of my favorite drumming by anyone in like right. the context of of a rock band. And he's like so improvisational too. I mean, we'll get to it in the big jams that are later in this show. But even in something like Birdsong, you know, he's in full conversation with the rest of the band. He's not just holding it down in the back so that the soloists can do their thing. And it's so smooth uh, too, man. Like he yeah. doesn't sound like he's looking for anything. It just seems like he's always there. And just natural. And yeah. even when he's going off, he's always in the pocket. I don't know how he does that. It, but the groove does even when he's like like you said, like on the jams, going out and exploring, I just feel like he's always holding it down some way. So I, I don't know. I just I Billy in this era, it's just unbelievable. He had such a small kit, too. Like, we watched Sunshine Daydream at one point during the pandemic, I remember, which is from the Vanita show. He's got, like, you know, six drums and some cymbals. Like, it's not this, like, massive, you know, uh, totally surrounded by percussion mm. instruments thing that he would have later with Mickey. Uh, but he can make that, you know, small combination of instruments sound like a million different things. I mean, it's he's a wizard at this point. Um yeah, I don't, I don't know what else to say. I, I, I want to shout out Bob, too. I mean, this is like my favorite era for Bob, just being an incredibly inventive rhythm guitarist and having the greatest sounding guitar. And the the way he, you know, works with Jerry and compliments Jerry without, you know, just settling into sort of boring, I'm going to sit here and play the chords while Jerry goes off is... Part another key part of the dead magic that can't be reproduced. Like you can't put another guitarist in Bob's role, and it's it's not going to give you the same thing. So, uh, China Writer, another one here that sounds so much better. We talked about how the '71 China Writer was like strangely forgettable. Like we couldn't latch onto it; it wouldn't stick in our memories. Uh, this one isn't quite to like the big '73, '74 China Writer with the feeling groovy jam and all that, uh, but it's got that new format where Bobby does takes a little solo, 
after the China part is over and then hands it over to Jerry and you get this like cool in between China Rider vibe for a couple minutes and it's it's you know it's magic it's something that only the dead could do and again it's because Keith's in there too laying down keys even if even if it's not doing anything spectacular I feel like he brings a fluidity to that part of the jam that they wouldn't have had in 71 just yeah and I mean look Jerry's amazing too. I mean, Phil's amazing. We could just sing the praises of everyone. I mean, I think this Donna, Donna when she shows up. Donna's great. I mean, it does speak to like how well this is recorded that you can hear everybody, and yeah, everybody perfectly. has a chance to shine. You know, where you know there's some tapes like where Bob gets a little lost maybe because it's, mm-hmm. he's not coming through as clear. But you're hearing everything here, and everyone's playing so well. So it really, you can just. Focus in on one person if you want and just dig on them and the next time focus on somebody else. It's one of the real pleasures of digging into a show from this era. Uh, let's get to the, to the second disc here because, and again, I'm, I keep saying the same thing here, but it is, I think, one of the cool things about this album that we start with Ramble on Rose and Cumberland Blues, two songs that if you look at it on paper, you might not be psyched to hear them you might be tempted to skip ahead to the plane in the band that ends the first set but those first two songs i think especially cumberland blues uh blew me away just because i wasn't expecting to be blown away and maybe i should have expected this from the other september 72 shows but um and i like cumberland blues but you know you that's a song you feel like how much variation can that really have you know, uh, especially mm-hmm. if, you know, that song I associate with Europe 72, that's where that was introduced. Kind of like this version more than the one on Europe 72, though. I just feel like there's a little bit deeper of a groove. I think it goes on a little bit longer. I could be wrong yeah. about that, but yeah, it just feels more alive to me than even the Europe 72 version, which is great. But um, that was like a unexpected highlight for me like how much i like that song i was kind of yeah. blown away because it's not a jam vehicle but it's just an example of like wow they're so fucking good here that like they just bring everything up to another level mm-hmm. yeah and we heard another great one uh in september 72 dix picks 11 had that dark star that segued into cumberland oh, it's like right. a super improbable uh segue that totally uh, worked also- it also worked great and was an also an awesome version of it. So, yeah, just uh, a song that really benefits from how tight they were at this point. I think because it's it's fast and it's got that like bluegrassy like dynamic of all the instruments kind of like floating around each other uh, without you know smacking into each other and knocking over the whole thing. Uh, and now you got Keith thrown in there too. So the the piano works great on Cumberland Blues. It's even kind of like is like you know, Barrel House, Tennessee Jed thing that you you like uh, at various times in the Dead's history, but but done in in Cumberland here. Um, I really i I love the Cumberland Blues, but I was also really impressed by the Ramble on Rose, which is a song that I could absolutely do without uh, on most Dead tapes. Uh, but it all comes down, especially on this version, to how Jerry sells it vocally. 
because it, it can kind of almost be like a big like Broadway showstopper song if Jerry is lively enough, uh, just building up to that like goodbye mama and papa verse. Uh, and he really does that here. He really hams it up, which is fun to hear because like when we think of great Jerry vocal performances, it tends to be like the slow death ballads. But this is like Jerry doing, you know, jazz hands in the middle of a, a Broadway show <laughs> by the end. Uh, and it just rocks. Like there's, there's, like you say, there's nothing, there's no duds here. Yeah. I got to shout out the Black Peter on this disc too, because we, we talked about Black Peter recently on Dick's Picks uh, 34 and how that's a song that I find myself being underwhelmed by a lot. Like it, it oftentimes seems like a little long and slow to me and I'd lose interest at some point, you know, like even the studio version, I, I lose, uh, the, the thread a little bit. I kind of feel like this is my favorite black Peter that I've ever heard. Like I love this version and there's something about the way they play it where it just has a real groove to it and kind of a smokiness and the slow creeping, uh, quality to it that also has a sense of momentum and I think the whole band plays it well I guess I'm going to give props to Billy though here because I think this is another example of him just having great timing and mm-hmm. tempo and like he's not rushing it but he's giving it just enough pep to I think really bring this song home in a way that for me it often doesn't come home I mean, yeah. I, I just love this version a lot, and I, I I don't go deep on Black Peter and hearing various different versions, but I will say this is my favorite one that I've ever heard. Yeah, I I think I still like the Bears Choice one a little bit more, but that's acoustic and drumless, and this is probably the best electric one I've heard. And yeah, have the the same reaction. They just again, they just nailed the tempo here. It could be a dirge sometimes. And I think it was on, what was it, Dix Picks 34 was the last time we heard it? Yeah. It was just, just too slow, and it seemed to go on forever. Uh, but there's something kind of, like, playful about this version, almost, that makes it much more listenable. It's, it's a it's hit after hit here what can I say and we get some jams on this disc too like we uh, you know it's been very songy up to this point but then we start really dipping into some jammy dead which is something we've re- yeah I think been missing for for several volumes oh now. yeah yeah and yeah it, the plan and then the he's gone into trucking 
I, I I like them both a lot. I I guess I'm not blown away by either one of them. I, and look, the standard's very high on this album because we have some highlights coming up that we're going to talk a lot about, which overshadow I think what they're doing on on the second disc here. But yeah, that playing in the band, you know, it doesn't. It's not too short and it's not too long. It, right. It, it's kind of in that middle zone. They do get fusiony in that one not as much maybe as they will in 73 and 74 but like that seems like an example of them previewing what they're going to be doing uh you know in 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 the next year um but yeah it doesn't go quite as far out as as other playing in the bands but it, it gives you enough of that i think to be satisfying yeah i think so it's what 16 minutes 47 seconds one last appearance of our Goldilocks zone, I think we decided, is somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes for a plane in the band. Uh, because when they're going all out fusiony, where everybody is just soloing <laughs> their heads off, uh, there's there's only so much of that I can take, and I think that's the perfect amount. Uh, so so this one falls right in there. Um, I will say, like the he's gone trucking, is the only part of this whole show and volume really that left me a little bit cold. Uh, and part of it is just that he's gone into trucking is such a predictable, like coupling, uh, at this point, we've heard so many of them on Dick's picks. If you listen to seventies dead, you're going to hear it over and over again. Um, and I feel like he's gone. It, it just never has really connected with me. I, f- I feel like it's like my blind spot among, maybe it's not considered like a top tier dead song, but it's up there. Right. I would probably, it's like around like birdsong, like second tier songs that people like really wanted to hear at a Grateful Dead show. Songs that people really look forward to when they see it on a set list. And for me, like he's gone, especially after it slowed down, which it has started to do here. It's not the like peppier early 72. He's gone. Um, I don't know. It just like that is the one song that I feel like is a little too sleepy on this entire show. If we're talking about getting the, the tempo balance right. Um, yeah, the, and the trucking didn't really stand out to me, uh, I guess, on this one as well. So it's like the faintest of criticisms for this show, which I think is otherwise, you know, pretty perfect. Is just that it's this is um a little bit routine, a little bit rote here at the start of the second set. Well, I think what hurts this he's gone is that there's another he's gone coming up on disc four that they took right. from the Folsom Field show and i i prefer that one that's he's gone into the other one i i think that's a stronger combination so that diminishes this he's gone i actually i like he's gone a lot though and i i like it during this era to call back to dick's picks volume one that he's gone is my favorite he's gone of all time and there there's lots of uh He's gone from this era that I think are are, are really good. I was going to say, I, I feel like Birdsong is a tier one song, but maybe that's mm. just for like the heads. I wouldn't call that yeah. a tier two song. I feel like if I see a Birdsong, no matter the era, I get pretty excited because I know I'm in for something good. Uh, He's Gone, I think, would be a tier two. I agree yeah. with that as a tier two, but Birdsong is tier one for me. I guess it's like, it's a weird one because it showed up in the first set a lot. And they were kind of sparing with when they played it. Like, it only shows up in certain eras. But I mean, like, you know, the things you can't miss, like a Dark Star or the other one or a Scarlet Fire. Like, those, like, big, like, headline dead jams. But you're right, Birdsong, 
it's not as flashy as those, but it it definitely uh, gets to some really special places as it does in this. It's kind of like a first set Dark Star, you know, because they not, they usually wouldn't do a Dark Star in the first set, but like Birdsong, in a way, it has like a Dark Star quality to it because it's very spacey and dreamy. It doesn't go quite as far out as Dark Star, but it's like. If you're going to do a dark star in the first set, it'd be bird song. Like that's how I think about that song in a way, and I. That's one of the things I love about it that it is a little more structured than a dark star, but it goes to the same emotional areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I love about it. Speaking of dark star, speaking of dark star, we go to disc pretty three? good one. Yes, the 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 centerpiece of the volume. I yes, think. you yes. can't argue with it. Yes, thirty seven minutes. Dark Star, yeah. and then you go into Morning Dew. I really think of these two as a tandem. Yeah, you got to. It's uh, a, like a solid fifty minutes here. Yeah, of just peak dead. <laughs> the, just just the heart of it. And uh, although Robin, I didn't really like it that much. Uh, we were, uh... <laughs> right. Well, I passed. Let's move on to this far. Snooze. No, we obviously love it. I mean, it's amazing. It's yeah. I looked up. On heady version, Dark Star. This is number seven. I was a little surprised that it wasn't higher. That seems low. Weirdly enough, the Dark Star from Dick's Picks 2 is right above it, which I think is totally wow. wrong. People really like the Tighten Up Jam. I yeah, guess. that's that's no. I think you're, that that's being over. You're overrating that. I the heady version community. You got to reconsider yeah. that one. Uh, the number one. Uh, Dark Star. I don't have this in front of me. I, sh- I should. I got it this. here. I, it's Vanita. Right. So, it's Vanita. You know, basically a month earlier than this. Uh, just to show you. And then, like the Dick's Picks Four, I think is after that, right? Like, yeah. From seventy four. And then uh, let's see. Yeah, looks like the Live Dead version. There's an early seventy one. There's Winterland seventy three. So, yeah, number seven. I think it's too low. And my argument for why is the same as my argument for why this Dark Star is kind of the best way they could have come up with to wrap up the Dick's Pick series. Like, this really feels like the grand finale of 36 volumes of Dick's Picks. Because I almost feel like this Dark Star kind of contains, if you pair it with the Dew especially, this Dark Star Dew kind of contains everything great about the dead from multiple eras. Maybe not every era, but it does a pretty good job of offering a synopsis of everything that's incredible about Grateful Dead jamming uh, through their 30-year history. Um, and it's it's interesting because, so we heard a Dark Star that is six days after this show on Dick's Picks 11. Uh, that's uh, 927 from the Stanley Theater. And I went back and listened to that one. And it's very different. Like, I remember when we talked about the Dick's Picks 4 Dark Star, which I love. Um, I listened to the Dark Star from the night before, and it was like a, almost the same exact moves. Uh, but this Dark Star is structured completely differently from the Dick's Picks 11 one, which is sort of a cosmic voyage where they don't even get around to the first verse until 25 minutes in. And isn't it darker, then, too? It's darker. It is more abstract. It's... Like, I don't know. It's it's got that sort of like cosmic late sixties dark star feel. I think more than this one does. It's pretty awesome. Is, 
kind of episodic. I mean, they're both great. And it, it's, you know, it's really tough to decide, like, which one is better. I think I like this one better because I like more episodic jamming than just, like, a continuous half hour in sort of the same zone. But, I mean, you can make an argument for both that are totally legit. Yeah, I uh, I think you make a great point about this being almost like an omnibus of the Grateful Dead, that you're going to get some fusion-y stuff in there. You're going to get some sort of like like chugging chugle stuff in there. You're going to yeah. get some of the spacey stuff in there. It is like a tour through Grateful Dead history up to 1972. And even like previewing really like what they're going to be doing for the next few years, like with the fusion type stuff. Absolutely. If there was a disco jam in there somehow, I don't think disco <laughs> was invented yet. If there was, it would pretty much describe the entire 70s. Because, yeah, you have... So here they get to the verse a lot earlier. They get to it 12 minutes in. They never get to the second verse. I don't know if they ever got to the second verse in 72. It just seems like, you know, who needs a second verse? We're just going to keep playing. Um, but yeah, after that verse, it's like a total 73-74 jam. Like, it's like fusion-y, but jazzier than the playing in the band one from earlier. Uh, you know, very Keith forward, um, works from like sort of a quiet part up to a big build. Uh, but then of course they just keep going. There's like a spacey feedback part, which is very late sixties, Dix Fix Four, Dark Star. Uh, it gets even weirder. About the 31st minute, they get into a country jam, like a chugle jam, which sounds like 71 dead. It sounds like something from the last volume. Uh, and then after that, they get the, 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 the big finale of the finale is a Mind Left Body Jam, which is just incredible. Like Phil suggests it, Jerry picks up on it. It's just this like triumphant finish to this huge dark star. And I, I love it so much. It sounds so cool. I mean, there is an aspect to this Dark Star where it feels composed, you know, that they, if you didn't know any better, you'd think, okay, they figured this out and they've been rehearsing mm -hmm. this and, because it's so smooth and it feels so, uh, uh, sort of, there's, there's such an intentionality to it. It doesn't feel like anyone's ever flailing or lost or doesn't know what they're doing. 
they're just seamlessly moving through these different movements and it all works and it all sounds great and the fact that it's 37 minutes and never drags you know is pretty incredible you know and i think it's because as weird as this dark star can get maybe at moments it always feels like pretty melodic and tuneful to me yeah you know there's one a couple minutes that get spacey like space space like avant-garde but it, it it's it's brief yeah and you're not lingering in that zone for very long yeah. um and it feels earned you know when you're when it doesn't seem like oh they're just sort of figuring out what they're gonna do next it seems like oh no there's there's a reason for this to be here and it totally makes sense i have to say too you know we were talking about this being a piece with the with the morning dew and i think morning dew I almost think of this as like one long 50 minute song because like the morning mm-hmm. dew is such a great payoff and they transition seamlessly into it. Yeah. And it is weird it's to incredible. me that that wasn't something they did more often. Dark mm-hmm. star and the morning dew. It just seems, I don't know if it's too obvious to have these two showstoppers go back to back, but it works so well. And here, right. I mean, they're doing it brilliantly. Um, but it's like, why wouldn't you do this more? It just seems like it's such an effective uh, segue to go from this, you know, spacey jam into like their big, beautiful ballad. Yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> any other band would have driven this pairing into the ground, right? They would have oh, played yeah. it every night for every tour. They'd still be on the, you know, old man rock and roll band circuit playing Dark, dark Star in the Morning Dew every night. Uh, but you're right. The Dead, I mean, they did it. A handful of times in 72, they did it a little bit in 73 and 74, and then never did it again. Never post-hiatus. I mean, you don't want them to run into the ground, but just do it that few times, it almost seems like malpractice (laughs) to me. Because come on, dudes. Yeah. Come on. There should be a bunch of these from 72 to 74, you know, that we can listen to. Because come on, man, it works so well. Like integ- <laughs> integrity only goes so far. You you, you do have to uh, lean into your strengths here a little bit more with that. Sort yeah, of it's thing. funny they they would drop into like Sugar Magnolia more often <laughs> than Morning Dew or El Paso. There's or, a lot of you know Dark Star El Pasos from this point. That is that is so bananas <laughs> to me. I mean, one one thing about this pairing. And we're just we're slurping it hardcore, but and I don't know yeah. if this is a criticism, but it's certainly odd that it appears at this point in the show. Because there's a lot of great things after this, but like you know, and I, I alluded to this earlier, but you go from the Dark Star, Morning Dew, into Beat It On Down the Line. I just think <laughs> the contrast there, it's such you know, I don't know what you could put after those two songs that would yeah. make sense. I mean, maybe you have to go with a song like Beat It On Down The Line just to be yeah. like, okay, we're clearing the palette here yeah. with like, you know, the least, like the most earthbound song that we have. You know, <laughs> you've been in the solar system for 50 minutes. We're dragging you back down to the ground forcefully with this yeah. song. Well, I mean, that yeah. Any other band would get to the end of Do and would just leave the stage, I think. <laughs> like forget playing another song. Put it at the like, end that of the, is like, yeah. Put it at the end of the set. How can you how can you go on with the show after that? <laughs> like maybe take a set break and play a third set or something if you want to play more, but it's just like like jaw dropping. Um 
So it is, I think, you know, maybe you're right. You just got to play the most opposite song you can imagine. And Bob hasn't been able to sing for the last hour. So, I mean, it also is preceded by Mexicali Blues, which I think is even worse (laughs) of a song than Beat It On Down the Line. So, but you got these two slices of just, you know, uh, Bob at his most like uh cowboy fantasy i guess <laughs> before and after uh this incredibly transcendent hour of music um yeah i mean it, it, like i said this second set i think itself is 150 minutes long and it almost feels like there's three sets within this set <laughs> because you got that big he's gone trucking and then you've got the cool down song with black peter uh then you got this huge dark star do and you've got uh well I, I mean that is like a set in and of itself basically you've got the the jam and then you've got the cool down ballad in in do uh and then it's like this kicks off like a whole other third set which is kind of like more of like a party set i think uh it feels like the late night like let's just let's just boogie out the rest of the show here um but yeah beat it on down the line is a, a pretty hilarious choice um but it, yeah, when, when you play Half Step next, it almost feels like they're resetting, like you're saying. Like yeah. Half Step, to me, is like an early first set song. So it's kind of like we're now into, you know, yet another phase era of the dead here uh, to finish it off. Yeah. And we should say Mississippi Half Step, Uptown Tootaloo, the greatest Grateful Dead song of all time, appearing <laughs> for the last time on a Dick's Picks, um, which I really love this version. I think it sounds great. Uh, it, it it's like when you listen to this album, you, you do have to just listen to, to Dark Star Do in a vacuum, I think. And because yeah. when I was listening to this album, I would listen to that on its own. And then sometimes I would just skip those two songs and listen to the rest because it really, I think it diminishes the rest of the disc in a way, even though th- I think there are some quite strong performances. Like the half step, I think is really great. I love Friend of the Devil because they're playing the fast version. And Mm -hmm. this really, I think, reinforced for me that I like the fast version more than the slow version. I I appreciate the slow version, but I feel like that song just got slower and slower and slower. (laughs) And hearing the fast version, it just, it brings out a different character in that song where Mm -hmm. um, it just seems more wily to me. You know, there yeah. it doesn't feel like this sort of dirgy song, uh, like you know, sort of like a parable type song almost. Um, I like the jaunty version of it, so I was I was excited to hear the fast version on this album. Yeah, it's funny that it fits into this like late night party part of the set <laughs> because I mean, almost everything here could be like a set closer. Like Sugar Magnolias in there, you know, you could end on half step. You got Friend of the Devil in there. Then they go into uh, Not Fade Away. Going down the road feeling bad, Not Fade Away. Uh, yeah, it's 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 cl- as close as they come to playing the hits here, I guess, at yeah. the end of the show, right? Because Skull and, Skull and Bones is still the, um, or Skull and Roses, sorry, is still the, um, the newest Grateful Dead album. Europe 72 hasn't come out yet, which is another funny thing about this show. Because they play so many Europe 72 songs so brilliantly. <laughs> and yet people hadn't heard Europe 72 yet. Which, so. and I think better almost in this month than on Europe 72. I I, I, sure, think yeah. Fall, I think Fall 72 Dead is so great and superior to what they were doing earlier in the year. Which would make sense. I mean, they had all of this uh, touring behind them and they were really, really tight at this time. 
Yeah, I mean, I said so. We're on disc four now. I had said this earlier this, that there's no skips on this album, and I, I'll stand behind that. I will say, however, that on this disc, that the remainder of the Spectrum show feels overshadowed by the Folsom Field extras. Like I was, mm-hmm. you know, the Not Fade Away, going on the road, feeling bad, Not Fade Away. It's actually relatively short for what we're used to with Not Fade Away. We've we've seen that get stretched out to like a 12, 13, 14 minute jam. And I guess if you add up the two Not Fade Aways that sandwich going down the road feeling bad, it's probably about 10 minutes, I guess. Maybe eight or nine minutes. It's good, but I don't know. I The Folsom Field stuff, I, I really, really like on this disc. Yeah, there is a really hot Jerry solo going down the road feeling bad that people should check out. Sort of the middle solo of the song. Um yeah, I think the the middle part, the good down the going down the road feeling bad outshines the not fade away parts in this one, which is kind of how I feel like a lot of these late 71 into late 72 versions go. Um but you know, again, like this this anything post do in this show just feels like, you know, a celebration. <laughs> it's like the the they're they're celebrating the championship afterwards. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> By playing all the all the happy songs. Uh and one more Saturday night. We get one more one more Saturday night just to, to close out and instead of a double berry, I guess we should be thankful for that. Yeah, let's talk about the Folsom Field Show. I'm really happy they included this um, because I think the big jam here, of course, is the other one. We get a, another, you know, nearly 30 minute jam, uh, but it does not feel repetitive at all to me to the Dark Star from Disc Three. Like these are two very different half hour jams, uh, which seems improbable, but that's the dead for you. Yeah, you know. It, it... I'll say that my appreciation for the other one has really grown over the course of uh, the Dick's Pick series because I always feel like it's a real shot in the arm in terms of you know the energy that this song brings when it's played at its best. Uh, if you want to compare it to Dark Star, Dark Star is the dreamier, uh, more spaced out jam vehicle. The other one is really a chance for the dead to flex their muscle. And I think... It's great to include it on this last Dick's Picks because it just adds to that feeling that we're getting a little bit of everything that we would want on one album. And it's great that we have this contrast with the Dark Star where I do feel like it is similarly jazzy in a lot of ways, you know, kind of pointing to the fusion era that we're going to be getting in 73. But because it's the other one, it's just a more aggressive version of it than we're getting on the Dark Star. Yeah, I agree. It's like... It's somewhere between the plane and the band uh, from disc two and the dark star on disc three, where it does feel like they're kind of pedal to the metal the whole time, but there's still enough space in there that it doesn't get tiresome over 28 minutes. 
I don't know if I, this is an Owsley tape as well. It sounds pretty similar. So I think it might be because I think Owsley did most of the tapes in September. Um, but Phil, I think, is a lot more present. I mean, he always is on the other one. So it might just be the song. Uh, but after a show where I didn't find myself noticing Phil that much in the Philadelphia show, uh, this was like a, a jam that was just like, a here's a half an hour for Phil to just, you know, sort of be center stage and be driving the whole thing. variations on the other one theme that they play in this other one because they kind of come back in this case they do remember to sing both verses of this song uh, though it does take them again like 12 minutes to get to the first first verse um, but every time they do the sort of other one bass line Bob and Jerry are playing different things over it like different riffs than normal uh, and it just it's like I mean they they had so many ideas at this point where they were just, they're not even things that I've heard in other other ones. It's like they just, every time they come back to this theme, this motif, they have a new way of playing it. Uh, and there's just, you know, bands don't work that way. <laughs> like, nobody works that hard. Even the Dead later on didn't work that hard uh, to, to be constantly reinventing themselves. Uh, so it, it it's really cool. The He's Gone uh, into the other one segue is awesome, too. Uh, I love how the other one, sometimes, you know, segues into the other one sometimes take a long time to manifest. Like it, it'll be spacey or it'll be a fill bass solo and then eventually they'll get, or a drums sometimes, and then they'll get to the big like bass roll to get it into it. Uh, but this one, it's just like at the end of He's Gone, it like charges right into the other one and I love it. Uh, it cuts off sort of the more wheel spinning part that happens at the end of He's Gone sometimes and just goes goes right for the throat. And we get a wharf rat at the end of the record, which I was happy to see because we get a morning dew, which is the ultimate set to ballad. But then we get wharf rat, which is like the vice second set ballad, you know, that yeah. and Stella Blue. So it's good to get that at the end as well. Yeah, I mean, this was a great addition uh, to the end of this disc. And you just get to the end of this and you feel like, okay, I'm ready to let go of Dick's picks now. I feel like they, <laughs> right. they gave me everything, uh, you know, before, you know, we, we walk off into the sunset. It's like the, the series is expiring peacefully, yes. surrounded by friends and family. I mean, 
it almost feels more appropriately deady to end on like one more Saturday night or Johnny be good or something equally dumb. <laughs> like it is great to have Warfrat, of course. Uh but it's it's almost um I don't know, undead in a way. I, I noticed in this Folsom Field show they played uh Rockin' Pneumonia and the Boogie Woogie Flu, which I didn't know the dead ever covered, but apparently they did at this one show. So I you know, my only note is that maybe they could have ended on that just for like, you know, the most ridiculous possible ending to 36 volumes of uh, vault releases here. Well, you can always go back to what is that, Dick's Picks 28 and listen to the Bob O'Reilly. Tomorrow <laughs> yeah, never they, knows. They should have just put in filler from a 95. Yeah, that's the <laughs> ultimate. That's the ultimate Dick's Picks closer of all time. Just beautiful. So that's it. For us, man. We're we here at the end. We made it all the way through Dick's Picks. It was a blast. Even when it wasn't a blast, it was a blast. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I know the dead a lot more than I did, what, two and a half years ago? Yeah. I know. Yeah, I do too. Like, and I feel like it. you never learn everything about the dead, right? Like, there's always more to learn. That's why people get so obsessed with them. I feel like I have a much more well-rounded appreciation of the dead than I did before we started this. Yeah, I I can't believe we made it. I remember, Steve, I remember exactly where I was when you texted me with this idea. I think it might have been on the 4th of July in 2019. <laughs> okay. I was in I was in Boston. I was on vacation with my family. And I remember you sending me the text. And I was thinking, that is going to get so... It's going to be... So hard to get to the end of that. <laughs> it's like we're gonna be so tired by the end of thirty-six volumes. I don't know if this is a good idea. Maybe we can just do a few, or it's like some, you know, subset of them. Uh, but I think you were right. I think part of the, like, uh, part of the joy of going through this is what a huge undertaking it is. Yep. Uh, t- to listen to all this music and try and digest it and find new things every time. And come up with new things to say. Yeah. Uh, and I think it worked. You were right. We did it. We did it. Crawling across the finish line right now. Uh, do we want to do our thank yous? Yeah, we got lots of people to thank. You've heard their names in previous season finales, I guess. But uh, we want to say thank you, of course, to everybody at Osiris. Yes. Uh, Steve is like a one-man podcast machine. Uh, but I had never done a podcast before. I had been on podcasts. Uh, Osiris held my hand and got me all the equipment and technical setup to get this whole thing going. Uh, I want to thank RJ and Tom, of course, for running Osiris and, you know, being supportive through all of this and helping promote the show. Christina Collins, who helped us work with sponsors and find people that would actually give us money for this, uh, ridiculously. Uh, Liz B, who did our uh, logo design. Um, Amar, Amar Sastry. Oh, man. Did, did our awesome music uh, there, not an episode goes by that people don't tweet at us yeah uh what what version of eyes of the world is that where can i find the rest of the size of the world uh well you can't because it's a bar it's Amar a bar made it up star of the show <laughs> baby star of the show also got to shout out our mvp brian brinkman oh yes for putting the show Big- together thank you brian thank you for uh originally uh they wanted us to do an hour per episode <laughs> and i was like nah it's not gonna work and yeah. uh, I think Brian was a little dismayed because he actually has to listen to all of this crap. 
<laughs> uh, and even the crap you don't hear that he has to cut out. So he had to bear the brunt of our self-indulgence. So thank yeah. you, Brian. You you might think you've been living inside our heads through a hundred hours of this podcast, but uh, Brian is the one that really had to had to hear us and every um and ah and like that we say into the mic and cough. So uh, Brian Brickman, thank you very much for making us sound good. Let's thank our sponsors, all of them. Thank you, uh, David Lemieux, our only guest, yeah. our only guest, Dave. He was so great. He was great. It was. I forget which which episode was that now. It was the one right after Dick died. Yeah. Um, but if you haven't heard it, go back and listen to it. Um, Dave is the sweetest guy and is just so enthusiastic about the dead. Yes. Uh, and it, it was great talking to him and, and having him uh, be a part of his podcast and tolerating us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, yeah. Many people of his stature in the Grateful Dead community they cross the street when they see Rob and I walking down the street. <laughs> Not David. He braved us. Thank you for coming on the show, David. Uh, let's shout out Dick Latvala, the late yeah. great. Thank you, Dick, for giving us something to talk about here for two and a half years. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I don't think it could be emphasized enough. What an unusual series the Dick's Pick series was, right? Oh, yeah. Like, it seems like now, today, so much stuff gets released. Things just go up online all the time. Um, but it's worth taking a step back and thinking, like, how amazing is it that this band found a guy, a super fan, that knew how to do his job and take care of the vault, but also, you know, could be sort of the figurehead of this, like, incredible live series that, like, you know, there's nothing like it out there. Nothing so... There's there's other live series, live archives for bands, but nothing that is so like idiosyncratic. It perfectly reflects the dead. Like it's got its flaws, but the dead have their flaws too. It shows the dead in all their naked glory, and I think we have Dick to thank for that. It started in 1993. You know, I mean, we got to remember that much different music world at that time to commercially release all of these shows, where they're. They're official releases, but they're not quite traditional live albums. It feels more like a field recording, but it's also better quality than that. It was just in a gray area that I think a lot of bands weren't working in. And now, when you got nugs out in the world, I mean, it's just much more common now than it was back in 93. So, yeah, definitely an innovator and a pioneer, Dick. So, thank you, Dick. We got to thank the dead. Yeah. Thank you for... For being you, man. For making music, <laughs> for being brilliant and hilarious, intentionally and unintentionally. Uh, just a fascinating band to explore. And uh, we'll continue exploring them on our own and maybe on a show, who knows. But uh, they're they're a solar system onto themselves. And it's fun to hop in a spaceship and fly around and side of the dead for a while. Yes. And I'm happy they've... Uh never taken legal action against us oh come on <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if they had a standing to do so they've got their own podcast now uh and you know they, yeah, who, they who's first though us too. who's first that's true so yeah. maybe we should be suing them for inventing <laughs> grateful dead podcast because no one thought to podcast about the grateful dead before us hmm. so maybe I don't know. yeah maybe we'll call our lawyers <laughs> there mr grateful dead people uh we got to thank the listeners 
thank you for listening to this show and caring about it and uh, yeah. coming along with us. I've I've been blown away that people like it so much. I mean, it's like, you know, for me, it is like having a, you know, two-hour conversation with my buddy Steve. Yeah. And I love it. And it's so much fun. Uh, but the fact that people listen to it and get something out of it, whether they got into the dead or they were always into the dead. Um, I mean, that's part of like the listening to the Dick's Picks and talking to you about them has enriched my knowledge of the dead and how I view the dead, but also just like being part of the dead, like online community and having people talk to us online and share facts and memories, uh, jokes, memes, weird things about the dead, even the people that get really mad at us. Like it's all part of like, you know, experiencing the world of the dead for me. Uh, and so this podcast being a way to connect with that broader community is it's, it's special and I really appreciate it. And I think all of you, whoever, you know, reached out to us, even if you were being a jerk. <laughs> yes. And, you know, hopefully you appreciated it when I was snarky back to you. If you were snarky to me <laughs> and I was snarky back to you, not everyone appreciated that, but that's okay. <laughs> I we're all just we love this band. That's all that matters. Rob, I gotta thank you for agreeing to do this show. Thank you yeah. for agreeing to do it, and because really this show is just an excuse for me to like call you every two weeks, <laughs> so we could talk about something. Because uh, you know I was a lonely person and I needed someone to talk to, so I was like, I will trick Rob into doing this podcast. <laughs> and he did it, and it was great, and it was a lot of fun, and. So, yes. So, I guess now we'll just go back to talking without being on a microphone. I know. At least, at least for now. Well, you know, if uh, somebody wants to follow us around and get an odd recording yeah. of us, uh, you know, complaining about music or yeah. arguing about... We welcome tapers, man. We decide to do. Yeah. We don't uh, prosecute tapers. Yeah. If you're sitting behind us at Alpine, well, by the time you hear this, Alpine will be passed, but uh, <laughs> you can follow us around at the Alpine shows and... Uh, record our conversations um i guess it's a cliffhanger what we're doing next right yeah like, i don't we haven't decided we haven't ruled it out we're, yeah. this isn't you know goodbye forever maybe we do a reunion show in soldier field in five years oh, man. but uh we uh we i think we want to do something yeah we're gonna talk about it at our alpine shows coming up here and uh yeah i guess just Stay tuned. Like yeah. follow us on Twitter, and we'll uh, we'll make sure everybody knows when we what what we decide to do next. We just we haven't come up with a concept as crazy as this one. Yeah, uh, might be a so while until that Who knows? happens. Yeah. Might be a while. Might, you know, maybe we'll wait for our kids to go to college, and then we'll have all the spare time, and we can just. Uh, uh, I had this idea that we listen to every Dark Star that's sampled on Gray Folded. <laughs> Which would be maybe the one idea that's crazier than this idea. Because I think there was like a hundred dark stars sampled on Grey Folded. So maybe that'll be our next show, but probably not. But maybe it will be. We'll see what happens. Yep. And uh but we'll we'll be around and uh, you know, say hi if you see us in person. Buy Steve's book. I wanna plug Steve's book. Oh, thank you. Give yes. us the name of your book again, Steve. Uh it's called Long Road Pearl Jam and the Soundtrack of a Generation. There is some jam band stuff in there that I would not have probably written about if I wasn't doing this show while I was writing the book. But uh, I had jam bands on the brain, and I linked it in up to Pearl Jam. And, and anyway. Steve, spoiler question. 
Am I in this? Am I in this book? No, you're not. Uh you didn't. No, give you me are. You're in the acknowledge. You're, you're thanked in the book. Oh, okay. You're thanked I thought maybe in the acknowledgments. I'd, I'd be in there being grumpy at the Wrigley Field. No, show, but. no, I, 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 I didn't put that in. <laughs> I could have put that in. That could have been good, but I didn't. I didn't put that in. All right, we're rambling here because we don't want to say goodbye. <laughs> we don't want to say goodbye. So yep. we're gonna wave goodbye now. Fare thee well, everyone. We'll see you down the road. Dare I say? What a long, strange trip this has been, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) We love all you. We'll see you down the road. See you guys later. Thirty Six from the Vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden, and Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brinkman. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Vault is RJB. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses 
all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now at Evergreen and wherever you get your podcasts.